Lord, we come to you tonight asking that you would open our hearts to your word and by your spirit powerfully apply it to our lives. We look to you especially for encouragement and assurance because we realize as we look at ourselves and our own sin that there's very little in ourselves to commend us to you or to give us hope of eternal reward with you. And yet, Father, you've given us precious promises and a great deal of assurance that we truly do belong to you and you will preserve us to the day of our salvation. We ask that you might then encourage us by our study this night and that with that encouragement we might live lives which are more true to you and faithful. For we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The last time I taught Bible study, we were on Hebrews, the sixth chapter, which, as you know, is one of the most controversial chapters in the New Testament, one of the most difficult uh, for people to interpret. And I'm going to read the entire sixth chapter. I hope that we can get through it tonight. And I will give a little bit of a summary on the opening six verses so that you will remember how we handled them previously. But first of all, let's read the entire chapter together. Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto full maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of teaching of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit. For as touching those who were once enlightened, and tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fell away, it is impossible to renew them unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to open shame. For the land which has drunk the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them, for whose sake it is also tilled, receiveth blessing from God. But if it beareth thorns and thistles, it is rejected, and nigh unto a curse whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and the love which you showed toward his name, and that you ministered unto the saints, and still do minister. And we desire that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, even to the end, that you be not sluggish, but imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thee. And thus, having patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men swear by the greater, and in every dispute of theirs the oath is final for confirmation, wherein God, being minded to show more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, interposed with an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, which we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and entering into that which is within the veil, whither as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And thus far God's word. 
the uh, terrifying thing about this chapter, as uh, those of you familiar with it know, is that in the first six verses, the author not only says that it's time to move beyond the ABCs of the faith, laying again the first principles of Christ, but he says, those who were once enlightened, he goes on to give a description of certain people, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, those who tasted the good word of God, people who come within the realm of gospel blessing and under its influence, when they fall away, he says, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance because they would thereby crucify afresh the Son of God and put him to open shame. And as I interpreted the passage for you previously, after going through a number of uh, interpretations that are theologically unacceptable because we have other passages of God's Word which stand contrary to that interpretation, um, I suggested that there's nothing that is given to us in the description of verses 4 and 5 which absolutely necessitates saying these people are truly born again. That this is uh, a description of people who are under the blessing of the gospel, who have certain privileges for that reason, but nevertheless their falling away shows that they do not persevere in those blessings. And because they do not persevere, we must say that they were never born again in the first place. For those who want a more Arminian interpretation of the passage might say, well, that doesn't really seem fair. You seem to be reading that back into the passage because your theology elsewhere demands that once people are saved, they're always saved. And so you don't want to say these are people who are actually saved that are being described. However, I would suggest that what we have is actually a contextual interpretation of Hebrews 6 because as we go on in the chapter, you notice that the theme of the remainder of the chapter is what? The absolute assurance of salvation. That because God has promised and God has made his oath firm and sure, then we have a sure foundation, a steadfast anchor of the soul. And so in context, the author of Hebrews is attempting to do two things. One, he is threatening his readers that if they do not persevere in the blessings of the gospel, then this description of them will not be adequate for their salvation. And if they fall away, and if they utterly renounce the Savior, Jesus Christ, there will be no further repentance for them. So that is, on the one hand, the threat, the call to perseverance. But the corresponding truth to the threat that if you don't persevere, you will not be saved, is the assurance that those who persevere do so because of the preserving grace of God. And so we see a real harmony of uh, human responsibility and divine sovereignty in this chapter and uh, a real balancing of what the Reformed churches have always taught about the assurance of salvation. There is such a thing as carnal assurance. People who just take it for granted that uh, because they've signed a decision card or they're members of a church or they've been born into a Christian family that they have to be saved. The author of Hebrews does not um, agree with that. He says there are people who have actually gone so far as to be partakers of the power of God's Holy Spirit. They've, they've seen miracles um, on and on. They're within the sphere of gospel blessing, but then they fall away. Bob. Yeah, it is. 
that's true. It, the difficulty, of course, it, as I pointed out in our previous lesson, is that in Matthew, the seventh chapter, Jesus says there are some who actually will perform mighty works in his name who will not be saved. He'll say, on that day, I never knew you. And so we cannot rest in the powers of the age to come. We cannot rest in miracles. We cannot rest in being partakers of the Holy Spirit or some enlightening that we've had because we've been around a number of Bible studies. So Hebrews 6 begins with a very dire threat. And this is continued then in verses 7 and 8, which is where we begin tonight's uh, lesson, our new material. There the author says, The land that has uh, drunk the rain that comes often upon it and brings forth herbs meet for them for whose sake it is filled receives blessing from God. He's uh, going to drive home his point of the preceding exhortation by means of a very simple parable. What he says is, you go out and you work the land. You till the land. And the rain comes upon it. And when the land brings forth herbs, which is appropriate for those that are tilling it, then the land is blessed. Blessed of God. That's what that land is intended to do. But on the other hand, when you have been subject to the same kind of blessing, the land has been tilled, the rain has come upon it, and you bring forth not appropriate herbs for eating, but rather thorns and thistles, then this land is rejected and nigh into a curse, that is to say a curse has come right up to it, whose end it is to be burned. And I want to draw a couple of applications from these two verses to our own lives. In the first place, uh, I think the author wants us to learn that uh, any spiritual productiveness that is found in us is found in us as a result of divine grace. Notice, if we are land that brings forth um, good food to eat, to speak metaphorically, it isn't because there's something good about us. It's because we have been cultivated, tilled, and we have had rain come upon us. The ground is passive. Ever thought to think about that? You don't go out there and commend the ground for what it's doing. You may commend the farmer for his loving care and his taking care of the soil and that sort of thing. And we may thank God that the crops grow because he has sent the rain. But you don't usually go out and think, well, boy, this ground is really commendable. No, the ground is a passive part of the process. And so it is with us. If there's spiritual productiveness in us, if we are good Christian people, and God, uh, if there's something in us that is to be commended, it's not because of us. It's because of the work that has been done in our lives. And there are a couple of passages that use the same imagery that I'd like to point to. First John 15, 1. In the upper room, I think you'll remember this when we read it, Jesus speaks to his followers using an agricultural image and says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. John 15, verse 1? No. John, maybe I said it wrong. So sorry about that. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Yes, that's right. 
and my better students know how to hear me. First of all, John 15, 1. The Greek word for husbandman, by the way, is the same is a version of the same word we find in Hebrews uh, chapter 6 that speaks of tilling the land, the one who tills the land, the husbandman. So Jesus says that he's the true vine, and his father is the one who does the cultivation. And then look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? God. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that gives the increase. And so we learn from this image that uh, what good there is in us, what productiveness as believers is due to the grace of God. But the next verse, verse 8, tells us when a person comes within the sphere of the gospel, uh, the blessings of the gospel, which God has showered upon his people, but his life does not bring forth productive effects and fruits, then his life brings forth a crop of thorns and thistles, that is to say, conduct incompatible with the gospel. And because it does so, he is inviting God's curse and the fiery judgment of God. Now, you know, people don't go out and gather up the thorns and thistles and come in and put them on their table, serve them up for dinner. You know, you dig up all that stuff and you throw it into the fire. You burn it up. It's a common agricultural process, and that's likened to what God will do with us. He showers gospel blessings upon us, he expects that we're going to bring forth good fruit, and when we bring forth thorns and thistles, by contrast, then he throws us into the fire. Now, this is a very common combination of images, the agricultural and the being thrown into the fire in judgment. I'd like to look at a few parallels. First, uh, there is no first Matthew, and so I'm not going to worry about it. First, look at Matthew chapter 3, Verses 10 and 12. Matthew 3, verses 10 and 12. Harriet, would you read that? Uh, you can skip 11. You see how Jesus twice uses the image of fire and in agricultural settings. He says the tree that doesn't bear good fruit, what's going to happen to it? It's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the chaff over against the good fruit, or over against the wheat, pardon me, it too is cast into the fire. So this seems to have been a common way of thought in the New Testament to liken our spiritual lives to agricultural products. And when they don't bring forth what is good, then they are, just as literally the agricultural products are, they are uh, bound for fiery destruction. Let's turn to Matthew 13. We could read the entire uh, passage, but we'll 
for the sake of time tonight, look simply at verses 30, 42, 49, and 50. And uh, Dave, would you read that? Matthew 13, verses 30, 42, 49, and 50. They both go together into the harvest. At that time, we'll tell the harvesters, first collect the wheat, and then tie them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat and bring them into the barn. Thirty, um, I'm sorry, forty-two. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where they will be weakened and ashes of teeth. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come to separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them to a fiery furnace, where they will be weakened in action and teeth. Have you understood all these things? That's what, what we have is the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Some people are like wheat, some people are like tares. Who are the tares? That's right, the sons of Satan. They're, they're sons by Satan in the midst of the field, which is a wheat field. By the way, that's a real strong post-millennial image you need to remember. God does not say that this world is a tear field and wheat is just sown a little bit here and there. He says it's a wheat field and the tares are sown here and there. Uh, the assurance being that this world is his kingdom and that's the way it's going to be. At the end, the tares will be removed. And what will happen to the tares? They'll be burned. Right, I think we're getting the, the picture here. Turn to John 15, 6. Ron, can you read that? someone who's not really established in Jesus Christ, is not in union with the Savior, and they're like withered branches. And what do you do with withered branches? You cast them into the fire. Alright? So, the author of Hebrews is really uh, using an imagery that the people of that day and age would have understood well, and was commonly used in the New Testament already. When he says, when the ground receives the blessings of God and brings forth thorns and thistles instead of good fruit, then it is nigh unto curse, whose end it is to be burned. Uh, we're not going to look up these passages for the sake of time tonight, but if you want to write them down in your notes, many times final judgment in the Bible is likened to fire. We've just seen three passages. Um, that incorporate the agricultural image as well, but those that talk about final judgment as fire would include Matthew 5:22, uh, Matthew 18 verses 8 and 9, Matthew 25:41, 2 Peter 3 verse 7, and of course Revelation 20th chapter that speaks of hell as a lake of fire. So, again, common imagery for coming under the curse of God. The parable told by the author 
um, therefore is has a quite a bit of literary background in the Bible, but it's even more than I've told you so far, and I think I maybe have overdone it in stressing this point, because the language sounds very much like the account of creation and fall in the early uh, uh, chapters of Genesis. If you turn to Genesis, you'll notice that God created the earth to bring forth herbs meat for man's consumption, Genesis 1.11. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, herbs yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind. And how is it these things grew? Chapter 2, verses 5 and 9 tell us, And no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. But Jehovah God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not man to till the ground. Notice rain and tillage necessary for the bringing forth of the good fruit. Verse 9, And out of the ground made Jehovah God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. But now what happens when man falls into sin? How does God describe the ground? Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life, Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And so the language is uh, is well known from the creation account and the fall of man. That the land was expected, because of God's good rain and the tillage of man, to bring forth herbs. And after sin entered the world, it brings forth thorns and thistles. But that doesn't exhaust literary images being used by the author either. Turn to Isaiah, the fifth chapter, in the uh, famous parable of the vineyard found in Isaiah's prophecy. Let me sing for my well-beloved the song of my beloved teaching, uh, excuse me, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard and a very fruitful hill, and he digged it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also hewed out a winepress therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall be pruned. It shall not be pruned nor hoed, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more rain upon it. For the vineyard of Jehovah of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. And so God has often, you see, likened his people to uh, some agricultural product here, a vineyard. And he says, now I have tended you, what more could I have done for you, God says. And when you don't bring forth the good grapes that I expected, then instead thorns and thistles will grow in its place, and I will destroy the vineyard. So the author of Hebrews realized that in 
his readers would shudder. They should shudder. They understand what he's saying. There's so much background to this. He says, God has showered gospel blessings upon you. He expects the ground to bring forth good fruit. But if it brings forth thorns and thistles, the only hope it has then is to be burned. Well, that's more of the threat we've heard about. Interestingly, the author says, but, it's one of the, one of the greatest adversatives in the New Testament. After all of this threatening, the author says, but, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. The author has confidence that a genuine work of grace has taken place in this congregation. Despite the danger signals that are apparent, despite the turncoats who have shown themselves not to be true believers in the congregation, the author says, but we are persuaded better things of you. You might be interested in the fact that the Westminster Larger Catechism uses this verse as one of the proof texts for what God expects of us in the use of our words and how we're to speak of one another. And uh, this is not the language of the confession, but to paraphrase it, the confession says we ought to think the best of one another. We ought not to use our words to make each other out to be as bad as we might possibly be, but we ought to use our words presuming the best. And that's what the author does here. I mean, he's in the midst of one of the most terrifying, threatening passages in the whole New Testament. It says, but we're persuaded better things of you. We really are. We have confidence that God is working by his grace in your midst. And so the author goes on to speak approvingly of their works, even though he has threatened God's displeasure. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation rather than apostasy, though we thus speak. He says, though I have spoken this way and I've been stern with you and I've threatened you and warned you, though I've had to do that to be faithful to the Lord, we are persuaded that things accompany salvation are true of you rather than the other. For God is not unrighteous. You can translate that God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you showed toward his name and that you ministered unto the saints and still do minister. Uh, there's this combination of threatening and yet assurance of the approval of their works which is paralleled in Revelation, the second chapter, verses 2 to 6 in what we read written to the church at Ephesus. Notice the church at Ephesus um, has Jesus say to it, I know thy works, thy toil, thy patience, and that thou canst not bear evil men. Thou didst try them to call themselves apostles, and they are not. Didst find them false. And thou hast patience, and didst bear for my name's sake, and hast not grown weary. But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Remember, therefore, whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to thee and will remove thy candlestand out of its place, except thou repent. Uh, see, there is no stripping of the gears uh, felt in the New Testament when you have that combination. The threat that the Ephesian church will actually be wiped off the map. God says, I will remove your candlestand. The candlestand is the church itself, the light of the gospel to a dark world. God says, I'll remove your candle stand if you don't repent. 
So a very severe threat, and yet it's combined right in the same context where God says, I know your works, and I commend you for these things that you've done, yet I have this against you. And so we shouldn't feel some kind of conflict when the author of Hebrews does the same thing. He says, God expects you to repent. God expects you to be to progress in your spiritual life. God expects you to move ahead. And yet, God knows your works. And God commends them. In fact, uh, it's not uncommon in the New Testament to have uh, the Apostle Paul issue stern words for a congregation and in the very same epistle express strong confidence in God's sovereign work in their midst. Um, we find that in Romans 15, 14. We see it even in 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 4. You know how Paul really comes down on the Corinthian church and the Philippian church that disappointed him so much. He nevertheless commends in chapter 1, verse 6. And even the Galatians, who he are so fearful are going to fall into a legalistic Judaizing of the gospel, he commends in chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. And so often the New Testament brings together the threat of God's displeasure and the call to repentance, along with a commendation and the assurance that God is working among his people and that his sovereignty is going to preserve the work. And what the author of Hebrews then is saying is that he has confidence in their salvation, a confidence that is bolstered by the evidence of their works. And what kind of works are they? Any number of things could be mentioned, but in this historical setting, what are the works that especially set them apart? Don? No, no. Hebrews 6, verses 9 and 10. Mark, how about you? What kind of works have they performed? More, more particular, more specific. Look at it again. Well, they showed love toward his name, and that's a that's really a wonderful way of describing it. But then it's defined in that what? What did they do? They ministered unto the saints. They ministered unto the saints. And if you want to put that in, in uh, the historical context to understand it better. Turn to chapter 10, verses 32 to 35. Because again, the readers are going to be commended. Chapter 10, verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were enlightened, ye endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used. For ye both had compassion on them that were in bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your own possessions, knowing that you had yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. Cast not away, therefore, your boldness, which hath great recompense of reward. The author says, God's people have been persecuted, and you stood up with them. And you ministered to them in their afflictions. And when you saw that they were deprived of their goods, that didn't keep you from standing up and having you be deprived of your goods too. And when they were in prison, you went and ministered to them. You became a gazing stock and a reproach among men. Well, that's a very tender passage. The author says this, 
in the first hand. I see some in your congregation who are turncoats, who when the persecution arises are turning against the faith, falling back into their Jewish ways and renouncing Jesus Christ. But there are others who are ministering to the saints and still do ministry. Persecution has not made them afraid to affiliate with the people of God. And that's why this language that you showed, the love which you showed toward his name. You know what that refers to? It refers to the fact that they did not deny the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are Christians. It was very common in the days of the early church for people who were afraid or those who were apostatized to deny the name. Because it was something that was put on them as a term of, uh, of ridicule and disrespect to say that you're a follower of Christ, the criminal, the one who is a bastard. All these terrible things were said. To take the name of Christ, you see, in our day, we think it's saying something nice about someone, that they're a Christian, that they live a Christian life. In that day, it was considered an insult to be called a Christian. And yet, for the sake of their love toward the name, they ministered to the saints. And they said, we'll stand up and be counted. If you're going to despoil our brothers, despoil us too. We will not back down in the face of persecution, in the face of turmoil and affliction. And this is what has given the author confidence, that they truly are believers. That even when it has cost them dearly, they were willing to stand up for the sake of God's name. Uh, they were not afraid of the stigma of being called Christians or of what would happen to them if they did so. And the author says, God is not unjust to overlook that. That is a very strong passage, I think, that indicates that, um, that God will take into account our good works on the day of judgment. But how will he take them into account? You see, it's at just this point that we have a tremendous debate between Reformational Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism appeals to this verse to prove that the good works done by people merit salvation because God is not so unjust as to overlook them. I think that's a horrendous reading of the New Testament. It's, it's hard to believe anybody could really not see the truth when you read the whole New Testament laid out here. Well, what does it mean then? What's the alternative interpretation? If he's not saying your good works merit salvation, and I think what he's saying is those who have been saved by the grace of God need to realize that God will honor their work as saved people. But who ultimately deserves the merit and the praise for this? Um, I suppose you all should be able to answer that question without my help, but I'd like to look at three passages quickly to reinforce the answer. 1 Corinthians 15.10 1 Corinthians 15.10 Paul says, well, let me see. Stacy, why don't you read that? And uh, let me see if we can have uh, Willie prepare Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, and then Mark, Philippians 2, 12. But first of all, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Notice what Paul says, I worked harder than all the rest. 
Paul is an apostle. Paul is a hard-working apostle. And Paul didn't do this out of a sense of pride. He didn't say this in a sense of drawing attention to himself as somebody who has merit in himself. Because what does he say? Why did he labor this way? He says, by the grace of God I am what I am. And it was the grace of God that was working in me that made me work hard. And so who receives the credit? Paul? That's absurd. Because God did it to him. God worked through him. And it was by God's grace that he is what he is. And so there is no merit for Paul. Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Will it? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that out of yourself is the gift of God, not in result of work, that no one should boast. What else? Can we boast in our good works, Willie? Why not? By God's grace. By God's grace. And notice that it says in verse 10, when we perform good works, it's by what? Why do we perform good works? Because we are His, His workmanship. We work because He first worked in us. Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Next verse. How can I work out my salvation? Because it's God who is working through me. So back to Hebrews 6. Is the author saying, God is not unjust to overlook your good works, meaning you will be saved because of your good works? What he's saying is, the God who gives you the grace to work will honor the effect in your life. Will there be rewards on the day of judgment for Christians? According to the Bible, yes, there will. And God will not be so unjust as to overlook the fact that... Now, we're not talking about who's going to go to heaven who's going to go to hell. We're talking about all those who are going to get into heaven. But among them, there are those who have lived very righteous lives and have striven to improve their spiritual walk and have progressed in the faith. And God is not so unjust as to overlook that. So it's not a matter of justice for salvation. It's a matter of God's justice as he rewards his people for their faithfulness to him. A faithfulness given to them as a gift by his grace. Okay, verses 11 and 12. The author yearns for their spiritual progress. And we desire, the word desire here is very strong. You probably should put in there earnestly desire or yearn. We yearn that each one of you may show the same diligence under the fullness of hope even to the end, that ye be not sluggish, but imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is uh, a real word of direction that many pastors need to hear when we see the author say, say that he yearns that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the end. See, it's each and every one of them that he has a true pastoral concern for. The true shepherd takes a concern for every one of the sheep. Can you think of a story Jesus told that 
proves that point? That's right. To put it in the archaic language of the King James Version, there were 90 and 9. Right. Shepherd started to count up his sheep at the end of the day, and he found 99. Now, what would you do if there was only 1 out of 100? Only 1% you lost that day. And when you realize that this sheep may have uh, encountered uh, uh, ferocious animals, the sheep wander, you know, just terribly, you'd be stuck anywhere. And the Bible tells us that the good shepherd goes and he finds the one. Because he cares for every one of the sheep. And so the author says that he is diligent and he yearns that each and every one of them may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope. The Christian life must be marked by perseverance, this verse tells us. A perseverance that is unto the end. And I'd like to, to make use of that expression as we check three other passages. Pat, would you look at Matthew 10:22? 10:22. Al, would you look at Mark 13:13? 13, 13, and Don, Revelation 2:26. And Bob, you can get ready with Romans 5 verses 1 to 5. The Christian life must be marked by perseverance unto the end, the, the language of our passages, and we desire or yearn that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, even unto the end. Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Who will be saved? He who endures to the end will be saved. How about someone who endures for pretty long time, but then finally gives up. Well, it says, to the end. To the end. Now, I think many of you in this room know what I'm talking about if I speak of the five points of Calvinism. Five points of Calvinism. What are they? Let's go through them. Total depravity. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. Perseverance of the saints. Now, ask someone who is not trained in these matters to tell you what they mean. And uh, often, you'll have people who say, well, I, I disagree with those first four points. Or, certainly disagree with the election and limited atonement part and so forth. But I believe that fifth one. And you say, well, where's the fifth one? Once saved, always saved. Is that true? No, it's not. The fifth point of Calvinism is not the preservation of the saints. That's a biblical truth that we're going to see there. But the fifth point of Calvinism is the perseverance of the saints. Calvinists say you must lead a life worthy of Christian profession. And you must do so for how long? Unto the end. Unto the end. Only the one who endures to the end will be saved. Mark 13, 13. Similar um, passage, and then Revelation 2:26. He who keeps my deeds, that is the one who lives subject to my commands, who imitates my life unto the end, 
And so perseverance is a New Testament doctrine, a very crucial one, and this language of unto the end uh, reflects that. But in Hebrews, we notice something else, that he yearns that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, or it could be translated unto full assurance, even to the end. What is it that gives us incentive to persevere unto the end? Full assurance. Full assurance that God will do what? Preserve us. And uh, I, I've used this contrast so often that some of you may groan by this point hearing it, but it, it always seems to make the point. The difference between perseverance and preservation, an athlete perseveres. You know, keeps running until the end of the race, or whatever it may be, to the end of the game. The strawberry is preserved. That's why we buy strawberry preserves at the store, right? It's put in a context where it's taken care of and kept fresh. And what the author here comes he says it's because we have full assurance, that is, it's because we know that God will preserve us that we persevere to the end. And that's psychologically true, you know that? Sometimes a person who thinks, I really have no hope, will just give up. He will not use the full strength, uh, the full extent of strength that is in him. But if he has for some reason confidence that he will make it, and he'll push on and on and on. And that's what the author's doing. He says, because you have full confidence that God will preserve you, then you can persevere to the end. It's not for nothing that you strive. It's not for nothing that you make this effort. Well, well that, it is true that it's God's persevering, it's God's preserving grace, forgive me, that enables us to persevere. But I think the author is saying that it's in full assurance of that preservation that we that we move on to perseverance. Uh, look at Romans five verses one to five. Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And whom also we have access by faith and into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation both of patience and patience experience Bob, why is it that we endure tribulation? Well, the Holy Ghost is in us, but the passage begins by saying that we have hope in what? Sharing in the glory of God. And having that hope and confidence then in the midst of tribulation we persevere. So it's a parallel teaching theologically. Because we know God will not let us go, we don't let go of Him. We persevere in the assurance of His preserving grace. What is the problem mentioned in verses 11 and 12 that we need to avoid? Anybody? No, I'm sorry, it's Hebrews. Back to Hebrews, yes. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. What problem, though, do we have to worry about? Okay. 
laziness. Is that what your translation says, by the way? Okay, mine has sluggishness. <laughs> um, that's true. I, I kind of prefer sluggishness. It's more graphic. I think we all know what it is to feel sluggish. I'll put my hand up. I know what it is to feel sluggish these days. Um, I'm the kind of person who ordinarily wakes up, you know, real wide awake and gets up at. It's easier for me to get up early than to, to stay up late. Um, not anymore. <laughs> I I wake up and I'm really sluggish. You know, it's really hard to get out of bed, and uh, I'm just you know I'm worn down physically. The author talks about spiritual sluggishness, and um, I've got a physical excuse for my sluggishness. None of us have a spiritual one for ours. But my guess is there's not a person in this room who would say, you know, I've never known what it is to be spiritually sluggish. Don't know what you're talking about. I'm always right on top of it. I'm always full of energy. I'm always pushing on. I'm, I'm just full of vitality, spiritually speaking. The author says that you be not sluggish, but full of hope unto the end. Now, so the point is more than that you persevere unto the end. How are you supposed to persevere to the end? Ever watch the the Olympics or some uh, long marathon on TV? Uh, usually, most of us don't have the patience to watch the whole thing. Watch sports, uh, what athletes and what's the name of the program? Anyway, some some program that summarizes the event. So you see the beginning, you see people, you see the leader, and all that. And then what they usually do is they say, okay, so and so came in first after so many hours, and 15 hours later. Here is someone who's stumbling finally across the finish line. Well, they persevered to the end. And in athletic context, we uh, context we find that commendable. The person kept up even though it was torturous, painful, and so forth. But you see, the Bible says we should not simply persevere to the end. Because you can persevere to the end sluggishly, too. It says, but don't be sluggish. The opposite of being sluggish is to do what? In verse 12, be not sluggish, but rather, yes, but rather imitate. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author is uh, referring to past heroes of the faith. He says, take them as a model to imitate. When you find your spiritual life lagging, remember Daniel in the lion's den. When you find yourself uh, without confidence, remember David before Goliath. When you say, but I have to live without any visible assurance that God is going to keep his promises, remember Abraham and what he did. Remember those past heroes of the faith. Does that seem out of character or somehow inappropriate to you? Should we have heroes? And the author of Hebrews, of all people, makes a point of it because who is it that gives us the Hall of Fame? The faithful heroes of the past, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, right? By faith, so-and-so did, and by faith, so-and-so did, and on and on and on, of whom he says the world was not worthy, these people. I mean, he really commends them. 
And he says, look to them as your example. I preached a sermon quite a while back, early in the book of Proverbs, on having the right kind of heroes. As the author of Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Proverbs tells us the same thing, that we are not to model our lives after violent men and so forth, you know, the Rambos of this world, but rather to, to model our lives after men of integrity. And we read in the New Testament that Jesus is a model. We're supposed to walk in his steps. Paul said, imitate me. And the author of Hebrews says the same thing. It's not just the Lord Jesus Christ, although he's the greatest of all. He's our hero. He's our model. But there have been faithful saints, the Old and New Covenant, that we should be looking to as illustrations and, and models. So he says, when you become sluggish, instead of becoming sluggish, be an imitator of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Because, you see, what is important about the heroes of old is that they did not see the fulfillment of God's promises in their immediate experience. I know through dealing with my children that you can get a certain level of conformity to your will by giving an immediate reward. You know, if I'm going to do counseling downstairs in the evening and they all have to stay in their bedrooms and not interrupt and so forth, if they know that they can just get through the next hour, an hour and a half without interrupting Dad, they're going to get a reward, I usually get compliance from them. Much harder, though, when you don't see the fulfillment. When you don't see the concrete, the goodies that are going to come to you for having persevered. And the Old Testament saints, that's what marked their lives. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says they greeted the promises from afar. They're always down the line. They always had to endure the delay of God fulfilling His Word. And who above all do we think of as the father of the faithful in that regard? It's Abraham. I want you to remember the story of Abraham. Abraham was a wealthy man. And God said, leave your father's home and go to a land that I will show you. God didn't say, here's the road map, here's the way I'm going to work it all out for you, Abraham. He had nothing to worry about. God just said, pick up and go, Abraham. I'll show you where. And Abraham did. And then God made a promise to Abraham. He said, uh, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In fact, in you all nations will be blessed one day. Abraham lives and lives and lives and lives, no children. Abraham, in a moment of unbelief, um, decides he has to take it into his own hands. And he goes to Hagar to try to raise up a child so that God, he can help God out, fulfill the promise, right? God comes and rebukes him for that. He says, no, your wife Sarah will have the child. Sarah hears that. She's out in the kitchen, remember? And what does she do? She laughs. She goes, come on. What's this guy saying? And God hears the laughter, and he says, for that reason, we'll call the child Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. Isn't that beautiful? So that Abraham will always remember that God fulfills the promise over against Sarah's doubts, called the child laughter. Okay. And then the day came, barren Sarah, too old to have children, Abraham too old to beget a son, and they have Isaac. 
Well, we could say they lived happily ever after, and that'd be a real sweet story, but that's not the end of the story. But you see, after Abraham going through all of that and trusting the promises of God, and finally seeing the son of promise given to him, what does God do? He says, Abraham, I want you to go this three days' journey to Mount Moriah and there make sacrifice. But don't take any animals with you. Just take the wood and I'll make provision. And when Abraham gets there, God says, sacrifice your son. Now, I don't think there's any way that we can psychologically feel what Abraham had to feel in that moment when God said, take your son, make him the sacrifice. Of course, there's a lot we learn from that story. I mean, imagine what God went through when he gave his son to be the sacrifice for us. Abraham, sacrifice your son. And what's Abraham got to be thinking? God, look how long it took to finally get one son through whom all these other children are supposed to be born. And we're going to be cutting off any hope of fulfillment of those promises if I kill this boy. What is Abraham? Does Abraham hesitate? Does Abraham stop and think it through? He says, so be it, Lord. Lays Isaac upon the altar, and of course, what God does is he stops him before he kills his son and provides his own sacrifice, a substitute for his son, which in itself has foreshadows of salvation to come. But Abraham, you see, saw the promises from afar, and still he trusted God. In hope he believed against hope. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 will say that Abraham, accounting that God was able to raise the dead, was willing to sacrifice his son. See, Abraham said, I don't know how God's going to do it. Maybe he's going to raise Isaac from the dead after I kill him. But I'll do whatever God says. I trust him. Well, it takes a lot of, a lot of faith. And then the author of Hebrews tells us, you know, Abraham died not receiving the promise. Did Abraham die receiving the promised land? No, in fact, it's pitiful. Abraham had to go and buy a cave so that he and his wife could be buried someplace. Far from owning the promised land, he had to buy it from the Gentiles. The author of Hebrews commends him as the father of the faithful. He greets the promises from afar and believes the word of God no matter what. And so the author of Hebrews says, when you feel sluggish in your spiritual experience, remember and imitate them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Persevere to the end. And don't persevere sluggishly. Run with all your might. Like Abraham. Believe in God no matter what. That'll get you through now, I didn't make it through the entire chapter, and I, I dare not get into this next paragraph because it's really choice material. I wish we could talk about it, but we'll do that next time, I guess. You want to ask any questions about tonight's lesson? You see any, any way in which it applies to your life? Well, I think the I think the Bible is telling us two things. One, the promised land on earth was only a symbol or a token of the greater kingdom of God, which Abraham would enjoy not only in heaven but in the new heavens and the new earth. That the 
promised land was the, a small sample of the bigger thing that was yet to come. And Abraham not only knew that, but um, he also knew, I mean, he, he not only knew that ultimately it was going to be in eternity that he received the full reward, but he also knew that even in terms of the token, the small bit, he was not going to see it in his lifetime. So there's kind of a double um, uh, horizon of faith for Abraham. He's not even going to have Palestine in his lifetime. But even if he did, Palestine would not be the full, would not be the complete fulfillment of God's promise because he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He looked for the heavenly city. Yeah, but the double horizon is still there. Because we labor today knowing that the, the earth has not been totally reclaimed for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God intends. And yet, in the end, this earth can never completely be the kingdom of God. It's going to take a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And so we have that double horizon just like Abraham did. Good question. That's a, that's a good question. Um, and you'll get arguments both ways from theologians as to how much psychologically or internally Abraham was aware of this being a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus Christ. I'm one who believes that Abraham did look ahead and see it in faith. The Bible seems to say that. I mean, after all, he accounted God able to raise the dead. In the future, what does God do? He sacrifices his own son and raises him from the dead. I mean, how can, how can we be saved if Jesus is still in the grave? We can't. It's one of the things on Easter, well, actually every Sunday, but on Easter we need to really realize a dead Savior does nobody any good. And so when God sent his son to the cross, how can he be our Savior? Well, because God raised him from the dead. And I think Abraham saw that, yeah. From afar, I don't think that Abraham understood it as well as the Apostle Paul. And I don't... I don't want to be presumptuous, but in all honesty, Abraham doesn't understand it as well as you do, or me. Because those of us who are living in the age of the New Covenant have the Holy Spirit in full and measure. We have the full scriptures of the Old and New Testaments that Abraham didn't have. His understanding was just partial. It's kind of like looking through uh, you know, something vaguely down the line there. I think he did see something that corresponded to the truth, but I think we see it much more clearly. You have to remember, though, that in that context, Abraham uh, was telling Isaac, God's going to provide the sacrifice. He wasn't telling him, God's going to make a substitute for you, Isaac. Because later it becomes evident that Isaac is to be the sacrifice that God is providing. But then the words have a, a fuller meaning in that God provides a sacrifice in Isaac's place, too. That's a great story, really. Yeah, tomorrow, if you're just as sluggish as you were today spiritually after hearing that story, then, well, you better think about what's wrong with you. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer.